Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day in spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise Gallus. Welcome back to the Together PDX podcast. This is part two of our conversation with N.T. Wright and Esau McCulley on reading the Gospels while Black. Similar to the last episode, the format will go time of teaching from Dr. Wright, time of teaching from Dr. McCulley, then they'll go into a bit more of a dialogue and answer questions from Tim Mackey. It's a rich time together. Enjoy. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Um, We're just going to we're going to dive right in again. Um, This is part two. Um, So in this uh, part, uh, we're going to be taking these biblical perspectives and uh, using them to reflect on the history of these issues, especially in Europe and America, and also like the situation on the ground uh, current time. So uh, Tom is going to. kind of share uh, first in the session, and then Esau, just feel free after Tom finishes to continue, and then again, I'll moderate a discussion time after that. Great, thanks Tim, and uh, thank you all for allowing us this break, which when you're talking a lot, it's actually quite good to stand up and walk around and yes, have a drink of something. Uh, I have been fascinated um, in uh, both intellectually, just because it is an extraordinary story, but also with a certain amount of horror, looking on the history of this question as best I can. This is not my special subject, but because I'm passionate about the biblical vision, which I was trying to expound in the first half, I have naturally asked myself, how did we get to the point where we didn't even notice about this, where when I was growing up, it was just assumed that this church was basically a white Western thing, and we were being very gracious and letting other people people um, join in and have part of uh, what was really our party. And and I have had to come to terms with this, particularly because uh, ever since the Reformation, something has been going on, which, again, I would support, but which I think has had very dangerous spin-offs, because, yeah, there was a great division in the church a thousand years ago, when the Eastern Church and the Western Church divided technically over the question of adding one word to the creed, filioque, and that's proceeding from the Father and the Son. But actually, uh, Rome and the East were pulling apart in all sorts of ways, politically, uh, as well as obviously geographically. And that word in the creed was a symptom. But already there was a sense that this is Roman Christianity and that is Greek or, or Eastern Christianity, as though you could have two Christianities. And that's been a problem ever since. But then with the Reformation, one of the great watchwords of the Reformation was to have scripture and liturgy in your own language. Because if you'd always only heard scripture in Latin, and if you then had somebody have to explain, oh, this is what it really means, without you being able to read it for yourself... And if all the prayers in church had been in Latin, I'm thinking obviously of, of Europe for hundreds of years, then, uh, and it wasn't your own language and you were only vaguely aware of what it might mean, then uh, there's something enormously liberating about being told, guess what? You can speak to God in your own language and we're going to translate the Bible into your own language. One of my great heroes, William Tyndale, devoted his life and indeed died for the principle of having scripture in the vernacular. And it really was vernacular with Tyndale, uh, the King James Version, which comes a bit later and borrows from Tyndale, but makes it a bit grander, a bit more upmarket. And Tyndale was quite earthy in his language, like Luther was with his German. So that was a great thing. But then as Christianity expanded and as the Reformation went out in different directions, so the principle of worshipping and having scripture in your own language generated, I think, quite accidentally, the, the, the fact of having different churches that were from different countries and so on. So that in a melting pot like London, even in the 16th and 17th century, people came from all over to London, you would have in the 16th and 17th century a Polish church and a French church and a Portuguese church and a this and a that and the other, with nobody saying, but hang on, in this Bible that we're all reading in our own languages, it says that you're all one in Christ. It's as though because throughout the Middle Ages, the great question of Christianity was, how do you get to heaven or how can you know that you're going to heaven? People hadn't noticed that actually 
the biblical emphasis, which isn't about going to heaven when you die, it's about God's new creation, the new heavens and new earth, that the biblical emphasis was on all those who believe in Jesus being part of the same family now. And the miracle of Pentecost is not to say, therefore, we can all speak different languages so we can go our separate ways, but we are all telling the same mighty works of God, the differentiated unity. It's difficult. Of course it is. Differentiation is quite easy if you don't care about unity. Unity is quite easy if you don't care about differentiation. Doing them together is tough. But then, as this developed through that period, you got the age of imperial expansion in the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, and with this very odd hermeneutic where some people really told the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land. And there were people who went to the new world, to New England, or indeed New France uh, and other new places as well, telling that story and therefore casting themselves as the chosen people inheriting the promised land and therefore having a right to dispose of the people who happened to be living there at the time. I know that's an oversimplification, but I've seen it in various contexts and I've read about it in various uh, settings as well. But then with all of that going on and with people not really noticing about the imperative to a unity across ethnic boundaries and particularly a unity across ethnic boundaries as part of the sign that God was doing the new thing, the new creation in Christ, then you get in the 18th century particularly, the rise of deism and Epicureanism, which says, God, if there is a God, he's a long way upstairs, and he doesn't get involved in this world so that this world makes itself by itself. And that is the primitive theories of evolutionism, not strictly speaking biological evolution, but everything in the world just happening without intervention from outside. That's an 18th century idea long before Charles Darwin ever got on a boat and wrote up his specifically biological evolutionary theories. And then out of that, there is a sense, well, if the different animal types have developed, maybe there are different human types so that within the human race, when did we first start using that word in that way? I'm not sure. There are different human races. And again, if somebody had said, hang on, according to Act 17, there aren't different human races. There is only the human race, but nobody, as far as I know, did or tried. Maybe they did, and I don't know about it. Then people got the idea, well, we've explored to this part of the world and that part of the world, and they're a completely different race. They look different. Their face is different. Their skin color is different. They behave differently. They cook different things. And it was very easy then for people to say, ah, there are these different races rather than the one human race. It fitted with the, with the emerging social Darwinism of the time. It's very ironic that some of those who are most opposed to Darwinism in some respects seem to have bitten the, uh, the, the, the poisoned apple or whatever you do um, of social Darwinism in a big way. And that's the point particularly where you get the invention of the category of whiteness. Now, I've said again and again, this is ridiculous. The only time you actually see somebody who is white, white, the color of this piece of paper, if I wasn't scribbling on it, is when they're either dead or at least looking as if they're a pretty well, pretty well moribund. Because we who are technically called white are actually either yellow or brown or pink or whatever it is. We are multicolored. Why were we ever to be called white? Well, I looked it up in the big Oxford English Dictionary, and the use of the word white to describe basically Western European Caucasian uh, ethnicity people uh, grows up with the exploration of Africa, where people say, oh, they're black, and guess what? That must mean we're white, and it's the creation of a binary, of a two-tone system, where you're either the one or the other. And it becomes ridiculous because, of course, there are people of many different colors. And we now talk about black people and brown people and maybe yellow people, etc. Well, it's it's fairly ridiculous. But that creation of a category of whiteness, and I know this is something people have written PhDs about and so on, and I haven't read them, but I've just reflected on it and looked up the words in the dictionary. That's something which has then generated a world with which we have all colluded, even though it was actually nonsensical. 
And the result is that Western European Christians in the 19th century liked to think that they were the ones who had evolved. One of the reasons social Darwinism was popular was because of the rise of a more upwardly mobile middle class. Oh, we are evolving. We are the the developed people. And then the division of the world into the developed world with all that sense of superiority and the developing or even the underdeveloped world, poor things, the sheer dripping patronizing feel of that it, it, it's it's hard for me even to to say it because it's pretty disgusting really and that the, these false evolutionary models which were enabling the idea of white superiority first calling it white um in, in order to signal some sort of superiority and then developing out of that and here's the tragedy my friends that the churches didn't even notice that this was a blasphemy against the goodness of God's creation of humans in his own image. The Romans 15 imperative had dropped off the back of the letter to the Romans. As long as you understood how to get to heaven, according to Romans 1 to 8, you didn't need to worry so much about the Jews in 9 to 11, and you didn't need to worry so much about ethnic unity in in Christ in Romans uh, 12 to 15. Uh, But of course, that is a travesty that destroys the whole point of Paul's argument. And now when I have said this in various contexts, People have said, oh, uh, you and, and the, the Church of England actually at the moment um, is having a thing about racism. And it's just you're getting on the bandwagon of all this woke agenda where suddenly the church thinks, oh, we better dance to these secular tunes because people are saying that we are now being sinful. And the problem here is that the church had left out part of its own God-given, scriptural, Jesus-authenticated message. And when that happens, don't be surprised if other movements see that there's a big vacuum and come rushing in from another angle to fill it. So when I got an email a month or two ago from somebody I know saying, oh, you're just siding with those Black Lives Matter people. Don't you realize they're all Marxists? They're all anti-family. They're all this. They're all that. And I said, well, this is like when Jesus says in Matthew 11, the kingdom of God is breaking in and the violent people are trying to break in on the act. In other words, people see there's something there and now we're going to join in. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was wrong to preach the kingdom. And the fact that people with quite other agendas to an authentic Christian agenda are saying that there is this problem of racism and it's pretty terrible doesn't mean that we Christians shouldn't have been saying this sort of thing all along. It's that if we have left the vacuum, it's shame on us if other people come in and fill it. Because it may look, and to many people in my own country, it looks as if it's a, a secular human rights movement uh, and that, uh, th- that that is sort of taking over the church. And the answer is no, the church mustn't address it like that. The church must expound justification by faith as it is in Romans with its full uh, significance of a koinonia, a fellowship of faith where the only thing that we have in common is the one thing that matters, namely Jesus and Jesus crucified and risen and our faith in him. So, you see, on the one hand, the modernists have said, oh, we're all identical. Um, And that is a very patronizing thing, because often, as we've said before, this is white people saying to the rest of the world, you're all identical with us. You're like honorary whites. And then at the moment, we're in full swing with the postmodern movement, which says almost everybody has their own identity according to whatever they feel or think or imagine about themselves and so on. And I claim my identity as this, my identity as that, which must be respected. And then the the whole thing falls apart. So the modernist wants to cram everything together as though everybody is identical. The postmodernist wants to pull everything apart, to deconstruct everything. And we as followers of Jesus have to stand for and to implement a differentiated unity. That's what you have in Ephesians 4, the many ministries which contribute to the unity of the body of Christ. It's what you have in in 1 Corinthians 12, where the body of Christ has the eyes, the feet, the hands, everything, and but they are all there for the good of the whole. And this image of ecclesiology must be recaptured and recovered. And I regret that sometimes when I say this kind of thing, some people say, oh, you're stopping to preach the, preaching the gospel. You're just doing 
the stuff that social workers do. That is simply not true. If the church retreats into a private sphere, a private platonic sphere of how do I get to heaven? And by the way, it is a form of Platonism that sees humans in a hierarchy with different kinds of humans superior to other different kinds of humans. Beware of the platonic influence on the gospel even today. But if we are, if, if we are to avoid that and embrace the biblical vision, then this comes straight at us out of Isaiah, out of the Psalms, out of Genesis, etc., etc. Yes, here is God's purpose going ahead and the purpose is to sum up all things in Christ. But it is this glorious polyphony, this polychrome, polyphonic community with every voice mattering, every voice doing its own thing, and yet within the harmony of the single vision of all one in Christ Jesus, so that the world may see that there is a new way to be human, a different way to be human, a Jesus-shaped way to be human, a cross and resurrection and spirit animated way to be human. And if we're not doing that, then why should anyone believe us when we say, this person, Jesus, died for your sins and rose again? But if we are even beginning to do it, then that message will mean what it was always supposed to mean. There, that's what I intended to say. Uh, I haven't gone for my full 20 minutes, but I hope it makes sense. That is that is okay, Tom, because I may speak for beyond my 20 minutes. and hopefully Feel free, my friend. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do two things, some of which will deal with some of the material that Tom himself has already addressed. And I'm going to tell you two stories. First, I'm going, and, and obviously that means I have to skip over a lot of stuff. I'm going to spend about five to seven minutes giving an intellectual history of the development of theology in white Christian spaces. So I'm going to go over this. I think you've heard it a thousand times before. But after I cover that 250 years of history, I'm going to rewind the story. I'm going to start again. I'm going to tell that exact same story from the, from the perspective of African-Americans. So this is not a universal narrative. This is a particular narrative of the kind of African-American experience and the development of what I've often called African-American Christian biblical interpretation and why it's important. So first, modernity. Um, as you all probably know, and Tom spoke about it, is the age of reason, what we now call modernity, the age of reason, beginning with the early modern period in the 17th and 18th century. During this age of reason, as Tom has already said, there's the, there's the dying of miracles, the high emphasis on reason, and the distrust of um, authority. And one of the debates, at least in the United States context, um, centered around the super supernatural aspects of the Bible. Think about Jefferson and the one who edited, you know, all of the miracles and turns Jesus into this great teacher. And the goal, or one of the goals of this period was to remake Christianity in a way that was acceptable to modern man. And in this context, modern man meant white Western Europeans. Now it's in this context, and forgive me, because you have two people who are involved in biblical studies here. The biblical studies kind of finds its footing. And the idea is that part of the goal of biblical studies was, was to dethrone the church. If you can take theology from the hands of the church and the state and the people who are in power and take the Bible and examine the Bible, just like we're examining the rest of the world in light of reason, we can get at the real Jesus. And oftentimes the real Jesus who people were trying to get at was the Jesus who was once again acceptable to modern man. And one of the strange twists of history is that biblical studies, which has, this, if I can talk about what's going on in Germany, often is a deconstructive origin. It's actually the discipline that's been mostly embraced by evangelicals who love to uphold the authority of the Bible. But, you know, history has strange twists and turns we can't get into today. So you have in the same context, where actually it comes along later, we need to mix into this what eventually becomes known as the Industrial Revolution, which created mass inequalities, including suffering, which leads to things like child labor, law, labor laws. And so you have these two things happening at the exact same time. On the one hand, you have the increase in what we call secularization and the removal of God and deism from the public square and the increase in what they see the drop in morals. And at one time, the Christian response to these things could be seen together, especially in places like the United Kingdom, where there was an emphasis on things like the temperance movement and social action in Christian context. Now, as an oversimplification, again, you got to enter in what happens. I can't speak to what happens in Europe. I can speak what happens to America. Enter into this, the social gospel. And the question is this one. 
In light of the industrial revolution and the mass inequalities created by the increase in technology, what is the role of the Christian in the public square? What should the Christian to do? In this question of what the Christian should do is being asked at the exact same times the critical question about the Bible, historicity, and miracles are being off and asked. These two things are happening together. And so what you get in an American context is what becomes the fundamentalist modernist debate. Where the fundamentalists say, well, look, there's certain things that we cannot negotiate with. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, the inspiration of scripture. These things are essential to what it means to be a Christian. And you have the modernists who say, you know what? We need to revise some of these things in light of new understanding. Now, the evangelical becomes evangelicalism in the, in the United States context comes out of fundamentalism. It's like, okay, evangelicals are engaging the world. And for a variety of reasons we can't get into here. In a white Christian context, the social action people who who agree that we need to do things in society to help the poor and the needy are all, are also the people who agree to with the revision of certain central ideas in the Christian context. And what becomes evangelicalism are the heirs of the people who maintain certain essential truths of Christianity, but also reject the social action. And so you, 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 you end up, if you can forward to the modern period, you now have kind of mature evangelicalism and you have the white mainline tradition where these two things are clustered into two different um, groups. On the one hand, you have evangelicals who uphold the authority of the scripture and the resurrection and the virgin birth on one side, who have an instinctive distrust of social action as manifesting liberalism. And you have on the, in the mainline tradition, a strong emphasis on social action and the transformation of society. But as a general rule, not in every case, the revision of certain ideas is related to Christian truth and practicing. And this is the story that we tell, that the evangelicals on this side and the mainline tradition on that side. Now, that's the story that I learned in seminary, and in one sense, it's true. But the one thing that you will notice is you can tell that entire story and never mention any black people. If black people are mentioned in this story, we show up in the 1960s during the rise of liberation theology that begins somewhere else. And some black people say it, and then black people become a manifestation of white progressivism. This is kind of how we're put in the theological story. You can read most systematic theologies and black people are mentioned phrase with James Cone in the, in the, in the introduction to liberation theology. The other thing, it, the question I want to, what I want to pursue with the rest of the time that I have is, is what happens if you rewind that story and telling it from, instead of telling it from the story of the European who comes to the United States and encounters um, in the Industrial Revolution and he encounters the Enlightenment, what happens if you tell that, that that same story from the perspective of the enslaved people? And what you see, and this is the hard part, I, I will kind of give away the game here. Some of the people who are heroes in the evangelical story are the villains in the Black story. And what I mean by it is, and this is a part of history that you just have to own, some of the same people who are upholding the inspiration of scripture and the fundamentals of the Christian tradition were also upholding a racial hierarchy, supporting segregation, and the ongoing enslavement of black people. And so this is a complicated story to tell when you realize, and this is the hard part for evangelicals to get their hands around, is that they used to tell them the story in which they're the heroes, and some of those same characters who are heroes often become the villains. And we often say, and this is this is this this like this is all prequel. Maybe I won't even get to my main part in my talk. Is that we say, well, they were just men of their time. Well, hold on. There were literally Christians who were yelling over and over again, don't do things this way. So now I'm going to tell a little bit of the story from the African American Christian tradition. So it's always good to start with um kind of the initial evangelization. And we're going to leave aside Christianity in Africa. We're going to pick up when the enslaved people arrived in the United States. We'll leave aside African indigenous religions and the fact that some of them who came over might have been actually Christian. We'll leave that to the side. We'll also leave to the side early African Christianity. That's just a different conversation for a different day. So I like to always start with my own tradition. There was an Anglican who goes down into Virginia and he's um, evangelizing the slaves. And this is what he says to them. They have to agree to before they can be baptized. When I say Anglican, I mean Church of England coming over before the revolution. He says, and this is what the slave, enslaved had to agree to before they were baptized. You declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty that you owe to your master. 
um, while you live, but merely for the good of your soul and to partake of the grace and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, in order to be baptized, before you can become a Christian, you have to accept a certain ideology around the worth of your body and soul. In other words, you have to agree that Jesus cares about your soul, but not your body. And they have this thing in the African-American Christian context called the body-soul problems. And there's two ways in which we're described in this period. Either we're souls without bodies. In other words, all God cares about is your soul so we can do you can do what you want with your body. Or they say we were defective human beings, and since our souls weren't normal human souls, they could do what they wanted to our bodies. In other words, there was always a dualism attached to the black person instead of seeing us as who we were. Wonder of wonders that that method of evangelism was not super effective. And so you don't have a large-scale conversion of African Americans during, well, the enslaved during this period. When do you see the beginning of a mass conversion of African Americans? You see it during the Great Awakening, interestingly enough. And here is where evangelicalism, believe it or not, intersects with the early, the early foundation of the black church. Because the evangelical tradition, even though they didn't know it at the time, they didn't articulate this this way at the time, they preached the doctrine of justification by faith. And the doctrine of justification by faith has as its fundamental principle the essential equality of all people. The idea is that if we're all saved before God on the same basis, even though the evangelicals didn't notice this, they didn't always articulate it, some did, but not all did, the idea that we're all saved by the blood of Jesus indirectly speaks to the essential equality of black people. So they said, oh, this is great, evangelicalism, where we can be basically equal, we will we will go this way. And so you begin to see the mass conversion of African-Americans. The other thing that happens, though, is the polities and the ones who are most effective are the Baptists and the Methodists, because they get the, as a Baptist, you need no one to ordain you. You get to start your own church. And so you have the rapid expansion of black churches that got to choose their own leadership. Now, it's important in this context to understand what these black Christians did when they became Christians. So, OK, then now we're. Starting off in our own tradition, we're not a part of these other churches. And so what black theology is, is what these Christians believe. It's almost like effectively the patristic era of um, of black Christianity. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. The first one is the foundation of the AME in 1787. This is what Richard, this is the story of Richard Allen in the, form, in the formation of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. In 1787, the colored people belonging to the Methodist Society in Philadelphia convened together in order to, and to take into consideration the evils under which they labored, arising from the unkind treatment of the white brothers. Why is there a black church in America? Because the, the white churches were treating them poorly. What did they do? Who considered it a nuisance in the house of worship and who pulled them from their seats in an act of prayer. So in other words, the black people came down to the front and they kneeled to pray. And they said, no, you need to leave that space. They dragged them out and said, you have to go to the color section. For these and other various acts of unchristian conduct, we considered it our duty to devise a plan to build a house of our own, to worship God under our own vine and fig tree. In other words, the black Christian tradition did not form in in an attempt to be separatist. They said that they can't function as Christians. Their brothers were not walking in a straight line in accordance with the gospel. So the only way for them to function as Christians and to actually practice neighborly love is to have some separation. So what kind of confessional statements do these black Christians draw up? This is an important question because there are no societal benefits to adhering to traditional Christian belief. So whatever these black Christians say about Jesus must arise from their own felt convictions. The African Methodist Episcopal Church adopts a confessional statement that is basically identical to the Methodist with a few additions. Here's one of them. This is a part of the catechism. In order to be baptized in the the black Methodist tradition, this is what you say. What should be done for the extermination of slavery? That's the question in the catechism. Answer. We will not receive any to our society who, who are slaveholders and who after being told the slaveholding is wrong, refuse to emancipate their slaves. So in other words, they rejected a version of Christianity that said that God only cared about your souls. And they embraced a form of Christianity that says that God cares about your body and your soul. If I can kind of use that, that nomenclature. We'll pick up the Black Baptist tradition. This is from my buddy, William J. Simmons. He writes this in 1887. And once again, keep in mind what's going on in the other story that we told around this, the late 1800s and the early 1900s with the fundamentalist modernism debate in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. God has permitted us, and through him he's implanted in us a vigorous and God spiritual tree 
And since freedom, how has this been growing? And since freedom, we have out of our um, ignorance and punery, they, they didn't have these things before they were free. They built thousands of churches, started thousands of schools, educated millions of children, supported thousands of ministry um, ministers of the gospel. And so in other words, what do we do when we founded our churches? We both released missionaries for evangelization. We educated people and we cared for the needy. The African-American Christian tradition begins with emphasis both on the transforming power of the gospel and the need to care for the felt needs of people because that was the context in which it occurs. And it was also, from the beginning, inescapably political because slavery was not just a moral issue, it was a legal issue. And so the Black Christian who comes into being during this period has to answer this question. What does the Christian faith have to say to the disinherited? And the African-American Christian tradition says, this, this, is, this is a Christian nation in theory, right? Well, then the God um, of the Bible that we all agree to is the God who cares about the experiences of the people and the God who made us all equal. So what do you see coming out of this early um, period of African-American Christianity? There's four strands will become the Black Christian tradition. The first one is what I would call the transformational strand. And it's interesting that that um, Professor Wright mentioned the... Um, Acts 17.26, because this becomes a foundational text in early Black abolitionist literature. Um, what, what Paul says, at least in the King James time, I mean, Professor Wright was correct in saying that we're not sure this is the best reading. But this idea that from one blood, God has made all of mankind. And so reading this passage, they say, and this is, here's another example. The African Methodist Episcopal Church has as its motto, God our Father, humanity our brother, um, Christ our, I mean, God our Father, humanity, uh, God our Father, Christ our brother, humanity, our family. In other words, they're reading Acts 17, 26 and saying we can be a part of one family. And so the, the, the primary strand of what comes out of the African-American Christian tradition is what I would call the, the, the brotherhood and critique tradition. In other words, there's the possibility of unity, but there's also this critique of injustice in society. The second strand that you see coming into being at this exact same time is what I would call the accommodationist strand of Black Christianity, in which because of the racist oppression, and some of them are actually writing during the period of slavery, they're kind of in, they're kind of internalizing some of the negative perceptions of Blackness that are going on in the majority of culture. And they're kind of repeating the talking points of saying, let's just trust Jesus and not worry about freedom. The tradition that is most widely known in the public is what I would like to call the Black radical tradition. Black radical tradition that doesn't just begin in the 1960s, it goes back to this early period, believes that the only way for Black, Af Black, Black liberation is to kind of reform central aspects of the Christian tradition. And then the last one I would say is Black pietism that accepts racism, but kind of doesn't really battle it, but it kind of focuses on holiness and the sweet by and by. So my claim then is that if you look at the early Black Christian tradition, you see that it, and you can, you can do this, like Google the confession statements of the seven major Black denominations. You will see they stand out for their commitment to historic orthodoxy. They believe the Trinity. They believe in, you know, the inspiration of scripture, Christology, the things that Christians will always believe. But because they arose out of the context of slavery and systemic oppression, there's, a, there's an emphasis on social action and the link between social action and Christian faith that you don't see in other traditions. And this tradition, at least in the United States, is often out of whack with both white evangelicalism, the white mainline tradition, and the black progressive or radical tradition, which is, exists there. But like I said, it is one offshoot out of at least four or five different branches. So then where does what we now consider black theology come from? And I'll probably have to stop here and we can have some conversation later about some other things. Black theology comes out of um, the um, James Cone is probably one of the, the, the major proponents. But in, in it, it is what now becomes black academic theology should be seen as. A, a manifestation of the black radical tradition that has been there from the beginning. But I would say that that tradition was never the majority. It was like one strand and James Cone picks up that strand and articulates it for the public square. Now, the interesting thing about this is that James Cone at the time is at a place called Union Seminary. And Union Seminary is, once again, a mainline institution. And so James Cone is at Union, and you have the proliferation of black PhDs. And so black theology becomes just this one thing that has its origins housed in a mainline seminary.
So why don't you hear a lot about the transformational strand of the Black Christian tradition? Why is that not often seen as in print as what becomes the Black radical tradition? And here's the reason. And this is once again where the heroes have to become the villains. If you're in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and you're a Black Christian who has traditional theological beliefs, and you're pushing back in a, in a significant way about sins in the culture, no American or very few American white evangelical institutions were willing to hire you. So there was no place for black intellectual life to be, to, to, I mean, traditional black intellectual life that carries both a strong critique of culture and an affirmation of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the authority of scripture. That is not, that is not affirmed in the academy. So where do we go? We go into the black pulpit. And so what I call black ecclesial theology is this habit of Bible reading that, 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 emphasizes both the transforming work of the gospel in the lives of individuals and society in the context of orthodox belief is largely confined to the black pulpit because there's not a, a huge inroad to it in academic spaces. So what I mean then is that evangelicalism has to recognize its own complicity in the suppression of black voices, such that you have a distorted perception of what black Christianity is. So who was the unhirable in evangelical um, context during this time period? The people who are hireable in, um, who are hireable in many, and this is not all people from this time period. Most people, if you're going from like the 60s up through the early 90s to early 2000s, <clears throat> are African-Americans who wouldn't, who wouldn't upset the power structure who wouldn't engage in strong critiques of society. And so what you see then is in the public square, you have black radicalism and then black accommodationalism seen as the only viable options. And why does all of this matter? All of this matters is that if you come to the, um, the modern period and I'll finish my talks here, you end up with a little bit of who comes here comes everybody. You get the internet, right? And so if the black Christian tradition has this spectrum of, of, of the transformational stream, the pietistic stream, the accommodationalist stream, and the radical stream, when anyone critiques society, you talk about sin, because the white Christian binary has these certain clusters. If you talk about societal sin, then you must have these theologically revisionist ideas, then they put you in this camp. And that means that the actual heart of the black Christian tradition that combines orthodoxy and orthopraxy is often not even given space in the, in the public square. And that is a manifestation of theological colonialization. And what I mean by that, mean by that is it is the inability to hear the black Christian voice on its own terms and understand that we have our own internal discussions that can't be easily mapped upon the progressive liberal conservative binary in America, which is why you also see the same constant confusion. And then I'll stop here and open up for Q&A. You see the same kind of confusion when you look at places like the UK, which we're not going to get into politics too much, but Palm, Tom, Professor Wright talks about how evangelicals are center left in the United Kingdom or even global evangelicalism that doesn't have these issues of justice. And so there is a unique development of the United States theological history that leads us to cluster these ideas that are preventing modern understandings of the nature of the conversation, what it means to be a Christian contending for justice in the public square. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Tom and Isa again. Um, there's too much here to uh, pull apart and talk about and uh, think about what we're going to do about all this. Um, but we do have some time and uh, I'm going to try and do my best to, to, to focus us. Um, so there's a, a number of questions, uh, Tom, as you were doing your recap of a, a very short history of colonialism and the way that affected uh, Christian theological leaders and church leaders. Um, so, uh, and you use this short little phrase, a, a differentiated unity that became almost impossible for Christians of any tradition, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, in this period of colonial discovery uh, and of the colonization of new peoples, um, it, this becomes impossible because of the structures and the ideologies that work. Um, so I guess one, one question that comes to my mind where that's a, that's a narrative that's getting a lot more exposure right now. And that's important. 
that history needs to be known to a lot more people. At the same time, um, I'm curious what, and, and maybe I guess if we had a, another historian uh, here, but in terms of bright spots or points of resistance, there were also elements at work, say, in the Reformation that, that did, in theory, undermine that whole colonial project, whether or not it, it occurred to people at the time. Um, but uh, how, would you, or how would you describe uh, what you know of as moments of resistance or just an alternate vision as the colonial project was going forward? Yeah, uh, thanks. It, it, obviously, it isn't my period. And if there are genuine historians out there who can contribute, then please do. I, I love studying the 18th and 19th centuries, but I, I haven't spent my life doing that. I normally, my, my normal habitat, habitat is the first century, as many people will know. Um, but, I mean, the, the, there are big figures. Um, uh, I'm very interested in the 18th century with the Methodist movement, with John Wesley, was um, clearly opposed to the idea of a pietism which just took your soul off to some heavenly flights of fancy somewhere and left the plight of the poor untouched. And uh, Wesley was, I, th- I think I'm right in saying, was one of the ones who was encouraging people like um, William Wilberforce in uh, in the UK, and there were equivalent people in the States, obviously, uh, to, to say, look, the gospel demands that we campaign for the abolition of slavery. I mean, to, 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 to put it no stronger than that. What I see going on then in the 19th century is more and more English Christians are pulling back from that because they're saying, no, heaven is what matters. We've just got to get people to heaven and... Um, don't worry about all all this all this stuff down here. So, I, but I I would say that within the Methodist movement there was a great uh, tradition of protest, um, which was on the one hand very firmly rooted in Luther and the Reformation. I mean, Wesley had his great experience through listening to Luther's preface to the Romans. So that, that's where he's coming from, at, at least at one level. But he also is saying no to uh, the unthinking colonial project. Um, and I, I want to say, um, and many people have argued this case, and it's a very complex and difficult one at the moment, but colonialism per se has become a, a bad word in our contemporary discourse. And that's an example of what Esau was saying before, because there are many people who from Africa, say, who will look back and say, well, the, the West did all sorts of bad things, but my goodness, they gave us this, they gave us that, they gave us the other, and the, the, it's, it's a mixed blessing, like most of the things we humans get up to. But so that, that's that's where I would go to start the answer. But there must be many, many other things as well. And of course, in the in the um, in the seventeenth century, there are there are great uh, spiritual leaders who are campaigning against the unthinking. Um, stupidity of some of those who just assume that we've got to do things the way we've always done them. Anyway, I, I'm just rattling on. Somebody else should should contribute to that. Isa, again, I, I want to very much address the issues that you raised. I'm thinking here about even this this period of the discovery of the new worlds and so on. Um, and, uh, and just in terms of bright spots, it's very easy to think of that as kind of this, what's becoming now a new dark ages. <laughs> I mean, so all terrible. And this, 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 is, this is what I would say. This as as a pedagogical tool. Hmm. Sometimes, um, when things get depressing in church history, one of the instinctive moves, or the history of the world in general, is that we want to downplay the scope of the problem, so it feels like there's less work for Christianity to do to solve it. So if it wasn't that if it wasn't that bad, then we have less emotional work to do to be able to overcome it. I kind of take a different philosophy and I say, no, it was exactly, it was exactly as bad as they say, but that's precisely the world into which the gospel comes. In other words, you look at the story of the, um, slaughter of the innocents. Baby Jesus is born and things seem to be, this is the turn of the story. Angels are, you know, like things are great. Baby Jesus is born. What's the next story that, that, in, that, that, that Matthew tells? They kill the children. So in other words, this is not a fairy tale. There is no other world for the gospel to move through with. Which, other than the ones that are that, in which the powerful are willing to slaughter the innocent to hold on to power. And so I don't need to find bright spots in the colonial enterprise in order to justify the, the importance of the Christian message. Now, the great thing about the Christian, so like, that's the first part. Like, that's just not how I do theology. I do theology starting from the cross and the resurrection. So when I get really, really sad, I ask, is the tomb empty? Not are there like some good Christians who I could find in different parts of human history? Now, as I say that, though, 
after I've said, nope, you got to stare into the darkness. We got to acknowledge the fact that the majority of the Christian world stepped on black people, rooted in a hierarchy of persons. That is our great shame. Now, if you own it, you sit with it, you live with it, then you can begin to ask the question. And this is the one thing that it is true. When I look back over the history of the church, there's always an individual here and there who give me some enterprise. And the God is not left without a witness. And what that means for me then is that in this present moment, I don't need everybody to agree with me. Right? It's fine. I could be wrong. I mean, it's fine. But what, what my world is now is to say 50 to 75 years from now, and people are asking, well, where were the Christians who were, who are saying that this stuff is crazy? Well, my work, and it can be what it is, but like there was a witness there. And I'm a Christian because there was someone who was there at the time period. You can't look at the abolitionist work that was not just black, um, that was black and white rooted in Christianity. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. Like the, the Garrisonians, they were run out of churches. So you got to tell both those troubles. And they were saying to the Christians at the time, you can't do this to people, black and white, rooted in the, the idea of the essential equality of people. They were saying that you wouldn't do this and Christians wouldn't listen. And so I don't know if like I can blink in the face of the darkness. I have to say the light shines in the darkness. And that's at least how I, how, how I, like, I don't, I, I mean, one of the things that I would say that the black Christian tradition has to give to like, like the white Christian tradition, if you can talk about those things in those terms, is that we have a developed theodicy and experiential theodicy. Like we never, we never believed the propaganda because we were the enslaved people. And so we come to Jesus in the context of seeing America for what it is. And we never had any other opinion otherwise. And so we're just comfortable being a Christian while owning the fact that things get really dark in different parts of our history. The hard part is when people aren't used to kind of seeing the darkness, they want to run from it. And I was like, nope, you got to go into it and then shine the light there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, related to that, um, Tom, you, you put your finger on something and, and Isa, I know uh, this audience would be eager to hear you talk about it too. And this is focused on the present moment. Um, and this, uh, overlap of movements that are very much focusing on racial inequalities and inequities, uh, but with a different story attached and whatever ism you put to it, Marxism, critical theory. Um, so this is a huge area of tension, especially in Christian leadership circles of which story is actually running the show, accusations flying both ways. And uh, people are just looking for clarity. In, in my world, pastoral ministry leaders, just for clarity and how to lead a congregation or a, a ministry team through these accusations and how to get to the, the real issues that need to be addressed and acted upon. Can each of you uh, speak to both what you see as the issues at stake and then how to, how to move forward? I jump into uh, the Western. This, yeah, go ahead, Tom. I so enjoyed what 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 Esau said before. Um, the, the there are two verses in the Gospels which seem to be opposed to each other. In one of them, Jesus is saying, "The ones who are not with you are against you," and in the other one, he's saying, "People who are not against you are on your side." And uh, they are a tease in the Gospels. I mean, there's many verses in the Gospels which are a tease it, because in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is always saying, and I think Mark is always saying, if you have ears, then listen, or have you not yet understood, or are your hearts still hardened? In other words, some of this stuff, you're going to have to think this through. It's not going to be plain sailing. So the fact that we find ourselves thinking, oh, help, how do we navigate this? That's the normal position to be in. It doesn't mean we have made some terrible mistake somewhere. It means welcome to the real world, guys. That's why Paul says, I don't want you to be um, babies in your thinking. Be babies when it comes to evil, but in your thinking, you've got to grow up and be transformed, Romans 12, by the renewing of your mind. And that comes through again and again. So it is here. We shouldn't expect it to be obvious. It's not written on the surface of the text, as it were, how to navigate being a Christian in America today, being Christian in Britain today, being Christian anywhere in the world today. It's something that d demands prayer and discernment. But I notice particularly 
that um, this the, exactly the same thing that happens when you get involved in ordinary politics. You know, I was uh, a member of the Houses of Parliament, curiously, for seven years because uh, so, some of the Anglican bishops are, and I discovered that the truth of the, the problem that you have to learn to collaborate without compromise and to critique without dualism. What do I mean? There are many people who share all sorts of agendas at the same level as you, and you can link arms with them and work together, but you must not compromise. There comes a point when they say, oh, well, if you're doing this, we always do this. And then we say, sorry, look, we Christians don't actually do that. We want to work with you on A, B, and C, but if you're going to D, E, and F, we're just not doing that. But then likewise, we have to critique, we have to hold up a mirror, we have to speak the truth to power, but without retreating into the dualism, which says we are perfectly right and you are perfectly wrong, because that's, that's bound to be a wrong analysis. So collaborate without compromise and critique without dualism. And it takes wisdom and discernment and hard work and technical specialized knowledge often to know exactly where those things are going to fall out. Um, and so that's so whether you're dealing with Black Lives Matter or, or, or colonialism or whatever it is. I would say that one of the things that we need is a little bit of intellectual humility. <laughs> and what I mean is what I tried to articulate is the divide, the question of the implications of the gospel for social action, which is what all of this conversation about. It's actually not new. It was raised both at the founding of the black church and the black Christians had a different set of agendas. Slavery was a legal slash theological debate, politics and religion. Jim Crow and the civil rights movement were legal and theological. So in both those cases, the African-American Christians said, based upon our reading of the Bible, these are the ways in which we deserve to be treated. So when you fast forward to the year of our Lord 2020, we actually have a record of reading these texts pretty well and doing a pretty good, pretty good job of diagnosing cures. And if you look back at the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement, in both cases, the, the African-American Christians were, were, were accused of adopting a worldview that was antithetical to the gospel. And so it may be the case that African-Americans are guilty of socialism and communism, and therefore they're not Christian. Before you level that accusation, you need to explain how your, how your particular critique is different from the civil rights movement. Because, it, listen, they called Martin Luther King a communist. And they said, we can't join in the civil rights movement because of the influence of communism and socialism. So we need, it, it could be the case you, that there's been a way of distracting from the issue at hand. What does the Christian faith have to say to the disinherited by means of, let's start this ideological argument. In other words, it's been done before. It's been done every single time African-Americans raised the issue of injustice. And so one question you should ask is a point of self-reflection. Who is a black person who acknowledges the reality of systemic sin affecting elements of society that consists of the black people who I agree with? In other words, critical race theory and socialism and Marxism often function as a way of avoiding the issue itself. And so it is really important to say, am I just avoiding the issue itself? The second question that, that, that often is, is put forward is the question of tone and language. They're like, well, I don't like the way that people are talking about this. And they were just nice and people would listen like Dr. King. But here's once again, Dr. King was not liked during his time period. And you know what the problem was? They said that Dr. King was way too radical. If he would just change his tone like the black people earlier than the abolitionist era, then things would be better. But if you actually go back to Frederick Douglass and what he said during his time, you know what he was said? The problem is Frederick Douglass is too radical is his tone. And so the two criticisms, the way that black people talk about racism, and the ways that um, the, the idea that it comes from a non-Christian worldview are, just to be honest, the same criticisms that have often been levied against African-Americans historically. Now, I'm going to say one more thing related to this, and this is also important to hear. Every Christian, like the idea of general revelation or common grace means that non-believers are able to say something true. So, for example, you have sociology. There are elements of sociology that are important. Or there are elements of sociology where you say, you know what? This is antithetical to the Christian faith. And so you can say, I can learn things from sociology. I can learn things from psychology. And the whole point of Christian discernment is figuring out what is helpful and what is unhelpful from any area of knowledge. Critical race theory, which is the main one that we're talking about here, 
what arises out of a legal context to examine the persistence of inequalities in society. That's what it does. It analyzes society. Some of those analysts, some of those, some of that analysis of society is correct. And a Christian might say, well, these two or three things your critical race theory say are true about reality because it describes the human existence. It doesn't mean, once again, if you, unless you're going to say that one thing encompasses the whole worldview, that a Christian has adopted a worldview. Let me give you one example that doesn't arise from critical race theory. For example, slavery is a system of oppression. This exists in law. Do you think that it took like Karl Marx to tell like a black Christian that structures in society exist that like oppress people? That's a crazy idea. And if, as I shown earlier, I say, hey, that's a structure of society, a structure of sin in society that exists, then I'm a critical race theorist. That's a crazy idea. And so what we need to be able to do is to say in any field of discipline, just about, it might be elements that I find helpful and elements that are in, that are intention with what I believe as a Christian. And that even within that general area of debate, something called critical race theories, there's a bunch of different things. That is not one thing. It's not how ideologies work or tools of analysis work. And so Christians who sometimes interact with this stuff are going to come to a variety of things. And I'll say the last thing and I'll leave it alone. The Reformation is a great analogy. The Reformation is a great analogy because here's what happened to the Reformation. Justification by faith is an insight that created all kinds of chaos, right? It split the church into a thousand pieces. And if you look at the Reformation, there's all kinds of groups that came out of the Reformation. We go, you know what? That was crazy. Like, we don't have shakers anymore. They're gone, right? That was an outgrowth that we ultimately said was unhealthy. But all of it was rooted in this energy that came from this theological idea. And time gives us perspective to say, this strand of Reformation clustered here. They went to a good place. This strand clustered here. went to a bad place. Now, what do you have? Again, in this moment. The relationship between the Christian faith and the disinherited peoples of the world needs to be addressed. Yes, that's where the energy is. And out of that insight, just like the Reformation, there are tons of things that are going off in a thousand directions, some of which are unhealthy. We can say, you know what? We agree here, but you run down this road that leads to ruin. So the answer is, if you're going to be a Protestant, is you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You got to find a healthy way to incorporate this insight that was actually there in Christianity into a way that makes sense. And so what I see um, now is that people are looking at kind of the chaos that comes from the insight and thinking they can control it. And you can't control it. The best thing that you can do is to make theological sense of it. And the work that people like Tom and I and others are doing are doing the best that we can to say, here's how you think about this in a way that is Christian and healthy. And if you want to say, what can pastors do? You can't run from it and you can't start side arguments and write blogs and papers about critical race theory. You got to actually talk to real black people about the issue and come to solve it. And this is the last thing I'll say. I know we're running out of time. I've done 50 events with African-Americans over the last year since this has occurred. Not one has asked me about critical race theory. Not one of them. This conversation it's largely an obsession with white evangelicalism. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist in black Christianity. It's just the fact that, you know what, you know what black Christians have known about for a really long time? Black progressivism. Like this isn't new to us. And we have a long ongoing dialogue with the progressive tradition. And we have ways of understanding this conversation. And so this is not this new idea that there's black people who have different ideas about God and Christianity and whatever. It's, it's just part of our, our general conversation. And so I just want you to understand that what I honestly believe, not that there aren't deconstructive or destructive ways of talking about justice and race in America. What I'm saying is the obsession with the few ideologies related to that discussion is the obsession of white evangelical Christianity. And it has functioned to cloud the ability to actually hear the concerns of their black brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you again for your uh, your candor and your passion on that um, and your helpful insight, both of you. Um, there are too many amazing and insightful questions coming in, and there's like four and a half minutes left. Um, so uh, again, thinking of, of our audience is primarily ministry, faith leaders in local church, nonprofit contexts. Um, if you were going to give uh, just a, a short list of 
what's the most helpful and faithful things to do moving forward in a local church with a, a nonprofit ministry? What are some best practices to pursue and dream? Uh, and what are some things that we just need to avoid and stop repeating at all costs? I, I would just say, um, Sadly, because I'm getting older and I'm semi-retired, I'm not in a position to implement too much of this at the moment. But it is always a good idea to find Christians that you don't naturally associate with and simply to read the Bible with them and to pray with them at a very basic level, not anything highfalutin, not massive teaching systems, just to be with people who are from different contexts to you and to read the Bible with them and pray with them. And when that happens, you have no idea what's going to come out of it. But if it's scripture-centered and prayerful, then good things should come out. And it will teach us, as Esau said, the humility that we need as we go forward. I was going to say, read the Bible. Like, sorry, this is going to be boring. (laughs) But one of the things, this this is actually true, though. And this is what I mean. And this is what, maybe this is biblical studies is going to manifest itself again. One of the things I try to get my students to do is to don't protect yourself from the Bible. In other words, what I mean by that is there's certain truths in the Christian faith that strike us, that kind of challenge our ideologies. And so we run over to passages that are much more comfortable to us. And so there's tons of passages in the Bible. This was you to know your own ideological camp. If you're in the justice crew, you might need to read those holiness passages in the Bible where he talks about the transformation of life and the, the, the passages that talk about justification and trusting in Jesus. So don't defend yourselves from those passages. But if you're from a tradition that has often been very intellectual and very cerebral and thinking about thinking about the right things about God, you need to read those passages that talk about the just society that's going to come in God's advent. And so what I mean is... Trusting in the entirety of the canonical witness to be able to inform the Christian life, trusting that God has left us a book that is there for our good. And so one of the hardest things to get people to do is that different (laughs) traditions have learned to defend themselves from the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so you got to put down the defenses and let the spirit of God do its work as you read these texts. And this is why the Anglican in me has been like the daily Mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. I'm just often like, if you read the Psalms over and over again, it just shapes you in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what I want to say. Don't defend yourselves from the scriptures. If you're a Romans Christian, Romans is your book. Make sure you stay in the gospel. Make sure you read the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. Read the whole Bible in Mm -hmm. prayer and conversation um, in your church and other churches in the area. And the thing, and this is the last thing I'll say about this. The things that brings unity to all of that is not that I say what whatever I want to say these texts mean, they mean. It is the fact that we're reading together, committed to the scriptures in some form of our authority. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we come into this this text agreeing that it's God's word to us for our good. And that's what brings the diversity of things together. And this is important because I might say, hey, this is what I see from this text based upon my experience. I might need someone to say, you know what, Esau, on this place, you got a little bit muddled. But if it's not, but if it's just simply all, this is what it means to me, and this is what my culture says about it, and there's no overarching kind of arbitrator, namely the spirit of God in trying to keep it with what the text actually intended, then we have hermeneutical chaos. And so I do think we need a diversity of, of groups of people reading the Bible together in prayer, committed to the scripture's ultimate authority. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. This is by nature a conversation that cannot be finished. It, it has to be ongoing in our own lives and communities. Uh, Esau and Tom, thank you so much uh, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank, thank you. And thank you to everyone who's been uh, online. It's extraordinary to think of you all out there and uh, yeah. wish we could see you all personally. But this is a great way. So thanks to Tim and the others who've set it up. Thank yeah, you so much. I want to say it's weird that like me and you, in order to have this conversation, we had to get, you know, 800 people to do it. But we, we, <laughs> <laughs> this is what it was like for um, three and a half years. We're probably just focused on Galatians. So this this is reminding me of um, <laughs> how much you made me keep, you made me stay on my feet when I was doing my PhD. So thank you again for all that you've done. And thank you. It was a good well, time well done. conversation. We'll catch up the next time we're in person. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Bless you. Um, we want to thank again uh, the co-hosts, sponsors of this event, uh, Regent uh, uh, College and uh, Seattle Pacific Seminary, Portland Seminary, uh, the Murdoch Trust, Kevin and, and the Palau Association for, for uh, helping us put these on. Uh, we're really grateful 
Um, thank you, each of you, for coming. Uh, I think you're going to be sent a survey to let us know about how this experience was beneficial or helpful. Uh, I know all of these organizations want to be doing more events like this uh, in the near future. Um, may God have mercy upon us and uh, guide guide us by his spirit as we go out into the world. Thank you, everybody, uh, for coming. Hey, how good was that? I am sure everyone is walking away challenged, inspired, and encouraged. I want to let you know that Esau McCulley is actually coming back to Portland this fall, November 28th, 2023. So mark your calendars to see him in person. Go to togetherpdx.org slash events to sign up and see the other speakers we have lined up for this year's Gospel Gatherings.